0: In 1815, before the advent of contemporary technology, communication was done a little bit different. Instead of being able to have news travel in but an instant with a tweet or a Facebook post, people had to come up with different strategies. This was especially significant in the Battle of Waterloo, in which General Wellington's British were colliding with Napoleon's French. You see, what they did, what the British did, was they stationed a watchman or a signalman atop Winchester Cathedral to look out to where the the, uh, ships were, and the plan was that that when the ships were returning, they would send him a signal of whether or not they had won or lost. He would then relay the message to somebody else of some distance away, who would relay the message to somebody else, who would then relay the message to somebody else until all of England knew the outcome of the battle. And so that fateful day came when the the battle was fought and uh, your watchman, signalman, is looking out and he sees the ship. It's kind of foggy. And that first word comes, Wellington. All right, he's waiting for that next word. And the next one comes, defeated. And then the fog descends on the ship. And so the message, Wellington defeated, goes all across England. England and the gloom spreads over the land. Wellington has been defeated. But soon thereafter, the fog lifted, and there was another word that came to the signalman. Wellington defeated the enemy. That was the the fuller message. And so he passed this message on through uh, the channels that they had set up, and instead of gloom consuming the land, there was rejoicing. We have a similar situation in Matthew 28 this morning. The cross of Christ seems to have proclaimed the message, Jesus defeated. But what we'll find as the women walk up and discover an empty tomb and an angel of God is that that's not the whole message. The whole message is that Jesus has defeated death. That Jesus is risen. Our main idea this morning is going to be that Jesus is worthy of worship from all people. And our exhortation is going to be, make disciples. That's the application point, make disciples. We're going to work through the text in two parts. We're going to talk about the reality that Jesus is risen and that Jesus has given us a mission. Let's pray and then we'll get into the text. God, we are prodigals, each one of us. Routinely sinning against you, routinely going once more after our heart's desires, even when they deviate from what your word tells us is best. Continually, we we come back to you asking for forgiveness. And each time you are faithful, place a robe on our backs and ring on our fingers. Thank you that you are merciful and gracious to sinners like us. Thank you that your mercy and your salvation isn't offered to really good people, but to repenting sinners who know all they need, all they have is Jesus. Jesus. God, make Jesus the most vivid reality in our lives. Animate us with your Holy Spirit this morning. Make your word cause us to come alive again. Encourage your people. Help us to believe you, God. In this we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 1. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone And was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. The angel told the women, Don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, I've told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, the women ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them and said, greetings. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. These women are not expecting a resurrection as they go to the tomb of Jesus. They expect a dead man. In fact, Mark's account tells us that they've got these anointing oils and these nice smelly things that make you smell good after you're dead, and they're discussing how they're going to roll away the stone so that they can go in and anoint Jesus' rotting and decaying body. But what they find as they go on their way when they arrive at the tomb is an angel And angels, we've talked about before, they're not cute and cuddly, they're pretty terrifying and scary in Scripture. This one has clothes that are like lightning. I mean, that's pretty intense. Really bleached, it's scary. And the angel immediately says, hey, don't be afraid, I'm here for a reason. And the reason I'm here is to tell you that Jesus is not dead. He is risen, he is alive. See, I've rolled away the stone so that you can see for yourselves. Did you ever notice that? That the reason the stone is rolled away from the tomb is not so Jesus can get out, but so that the women can get in and see that he's gone. That nobody's there. Angel shows up to let these women know the truth that God is at work. That's when angels show up in Scripture because God's at work. God has been at work. Jesus is alive. And to tell them to take this message to Jesus' disciples. And so these women who were not expecting a resurrection, they're not really sure how to react, and they go away in obedience, kind of afraid. But that fear is also mixed with joy. And just as they're trying to wrap their brains around this to go and tell the disciples, Jesus himself shows up. And he's just like, hey, what's up? And they take hold of his feet and they worship him. And this is not insignificant. They're taking hold of his feet, shows us once more that Jesus' resurrection is Bodily. It's not some, some kind of trash thought that, uh, well, Jesus, he lives on in our hearts. But he didn't really get up from the dead. Or Jesus lives on in his teaching. No, Jesus is really physically, bodily alive. That's the point. They're Grabbing hold of his feet. Like in other gospels, we see him cook breakfast, eat some fish. He's alive. He has risen victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over the grave. And he is worthy of worship. I gotta tell you, if this story is made up, the gospel authors really screwed it up. Because in the first century, like people wouldn't be buying this. Because women, as the first to kind of find out that Jesus has risen from the dead, well, that didn't bode well for your credibility at the time. Women were marginalized in society, and their testimony wasn't accepted in a lot of courts. They told a lot of old wives' tales, right? In fact, one Greek philosopher named Celsus argued against the historicity of the resurrection by simply saying, hey, the eyewitnesses were women, and this is his quote, not mine. And we all know that women are hysterical. Good job. I thought somebody was going to try and amen there. Glad that didn't happen. That was his argument, and people looked around, and they said, You're right, Celsus. Women are hysterical. These these stories could not be true. But here, 2,000 years later, that helps us argue for the historicity of these accounts. Because the only reason a first century, second century author, the only reason the authors of the Gospels would have women discovering the tomb of Jesus is if it actually happened. That's not, not the weakest or strangest argument against the resurrection even. Um, we, we actually get another kind of just not that strong explanation for the resurrection In the text, in in verse 11, and it's one people still use today. As they were coming on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priest had assembled with the elders and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and told them, say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while we were sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. The guards took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been spread among the Jewish people to this day. This explanation of the resurrection is really just not strong in any way. Uh, The story is kind of nonsensical. First of all, the penalties for dereliction of guard duty, like not doing your job, were pretty severe and went up to death. That's typically what it involved. Like you could be killed if you didn't do your job as a guard, okay? And and so you're kind of thinking, why would the guards go along with this plan from the religious leaders? And the reason is this, they're in trouble. And the religious leaders are saying, hey, we'll give you some money, because the tomb's empty either way, we'll give you some money to say this is why the tomb is empty, And we'll vouch for you if this news gets to your superiors. We'll keep you safe. And so the guards are like, hey, we're in trouble one way or the other. We might as well have their money and their protection. And so this is the story they decide to go with. We were were sleeping, and the stone was rolled away, and the disciples came and stole the body. There's a, a few problems with this, just on the face of it. First of all, it's unlikely that all of the guards would have slept at the same time, right? Dereliction of guard duty has a pretty big, severe penalty. Unlikely that this notorious Jesus who was put in this tomb and is supposed to be guarded, that they were like, you know what, guys? Tonight would be a really good night we just all start napping together. going to be awesome. Got their little sleeping bags on, onesies, slumber party. no. But let's say that they did decide to do that, and they did they did go to sleep. They're having their slumber party. Is it really possible that they didn't hear the stone being rolled away, that that wouldn't have woken them up? Right? And additionally, if they're sleeping, how do they know that the disciples stole the body? Right? If you were asleep when the body's taken out, how do you know that the disciples were the ones that took it? And then... Probably the, I think the biggest argument against this is, you're trying to tell me that men who deserted Jesus, who denied Jesus, who didn't even attend the crucifixion of Jesus because they were terrified, who, the other scriptures tell us, locked themselves in a room and hid away while he was dead, that they summoned up the courage to go 007 here, sneak past lethal killers, roll a stone away, and steal the body of Jesus. I mean, it just—it's not very likely. I mean, in this explanation—it it sits right next to other equally ridiculous explanations, uh, some of which I learned in my undergraduate work. Uh, But one, and I shared it with you last week, the most popular one is the swoon theory. Remember, this is the idea that uh, Jesus was not dead on the cross, that he was misdiagnosed by those professional killers. They were like nails in his hands and his feet, spear in his side, not dead, just, you know, low low heart rate. And when they laid him in the tomb, uh, the coolness of the tomb revived him. And then he rolled the stone away himself and ran the seven or so miles to his disciples and presented himself alive and resurrected in good health somehow, even though the wounds were still there. Not a great theory. Uh, another one is uh, the mass hallucination theory, that everybody just imagines seeing the resurrected Jesus together at once. Remember Paul tells us he's appeared to 500 people. He appears for uh, a period of time after his resurrection. To all kinds of people in all kinds of places. And so everybody just hallucinated this together at once, which would be an event that's unprecedented in history and not repeated since. Uh, my favorite theory is the twin theory, that Jesus has an identical twin, and they hid him away his whole life, especially through his earthly ministry. And after Jesus died, they stole the body, and then Jesus' twin came out and was like, I'm alive, y'all. And people bought it. Some pretty ridiculous theories trying to explain away the resurrection. I had another one for you, but I can't recall it right now in my head. But either way, it's, it's equally unlikely. The most likely explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Right, some people, here's the other one, it just came to me. Some people believe that it's a legend now. People go as far as to say Jesus didn't even really exist in history. It's just a legend that people made up. That one just flies in the face of historical reality. It doesn't offer any explanation as to why a bunch of monotheistic Jews would convert to an unknown religion and then change their day of worship to Sunday instead of Saturday. It just doesn't do the trick. The most likely explanation is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. I mean, just, just think about it. Think about how all of the disciples die, right? And you might say to me, well, people will die for what they believe to be true all the time. And I would agree, that happens. But you know what people don't do? They don't die for something that they know is a lie. And these guys didn't just die, they suffered. I mean, they suffered throughout their ministries, they were imprisoned, and they met brutal ends. Peter was crucified upside down. Andrew was crucified. Thomas, the one that doubted, was run through with spears. James was stoned and beaten to death. I mean, only John makes it out without being martyred. And he dies exiled, alone on an island. These men died because the gospel is true. I mean, otherwise you'd have to argue that they had an elaborate cover-up that lasted over the span of 40 years and not one of them let the cat out of the bag that this was a lie. I mean, it's, it's preposterous. I love what Charles Colson has said. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie going for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The resurrection is true. And the reality of the resurrection, it changes everything. It's not a naked historical fact that doesn't impact the rest of your life. Right? It's not like the moon landing. right? Like Men have walked on the moon. It's, it's a historical fact. We, we, you probably know that. But does it change your life? Not really. But if Jesus is risen from the dead, Knowing that should change everything. If Jesus is really risen from the dead, it means he was who he said he was. God in the flesh. If Jesus is risen from the dead, it means that rebel sinners like you and I can have peace with God. If Jesus is risen from the dead, it means that death is not the final word. If Jesus is risen from the dead, it means that he is worthy of our worship. If he's risen from the dead, it means he's worthy of our whole lives. If he's risen from the dead, he is worthy of your praise. If Jesus is risen from the dead, he is worthy to be honored as God, not just by you and me, but by all peoples everywhere. The truth of the resurrection must change you entirely, or it won't matter to you at all. You can't have Jesus on the margins of your lives. Just, I'll take a little God, a little religion, and make myself a better person. If you take a little bit of Jesus Christ, you will get none of him. You must have all of him. This truth must change your whole life because he requires submission his lordship he calls for disciples not decisions jesus he he doesn't care how many of you how many people in the world intellectually assent to the resurrection and say it happened he cares about disciples people that are following him with their whole lives Discipleship, following Jesus, is not a one-time relocation of your body at the end of a church service. It is an entire life of repentance, an entire life of believing God and trusting in Him, an entire life of having your whole life conformed to the image of Christ. And Jesus, because He is risen, is worthy of that. He's worthy of disciples. He's worthy of worshipers. He is risen and he gives a command to all who would believe in him. He gives a command, a great commission to his church. Look at verse 16. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you and remember I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus has all authority. He has authority over the sun and moon and stars. He has authority over every breeze and blade of grass. He has authority over the birds in the trees of the deer in the forests. He has authority over people not yet born. He has authority over every molecule in the world. He has authority over the skies and the seas and everything in between and beyond. He is entirely authoritative. He is supreme in his lordship over everything. He has that kind of authority. And when someone with that kind of authority commissions you to do something, you do it. And you can do it with confidence, especially in the case of Jesus, because not only does he have the authority to give us a commission to make disciples, but he says he will be with us. He will be with us. He gives us a mission, and then he goes on that mission with us so that we can have confidence. Imagine with me uh, that I tell you, I'm called to North Korea. And I just want to wanna go over there, and, and I think Poyong's the capital. Maybe it's not Not great at geography. But I'm going to go there, and I'm just going to walk around and pray for a little while. And North Korea, uh, it's in the top five. I can't remember where it ranked this year, but it's one of the places that persecutes Christians the most puts you in work camps, tortures you, usually kills you. Uh, having a Bible is a capital offense. And so I'm going there. I tell you, you know, it's kind of on my bucket list. I'm going to go there, and I'm just going to pray for a couple weeks, you know, like you're crazy. So I go to North Korea, and, and I do my prayer thing, and then I come back, and I tell you, listen, I, it was awesome. I, I'm, going to go, I'm going to go back again. And this time, I'm not just going to pray in the capital. This time, I'm going to preach through a translator, and I want you to come with me and to pass out Bibles. And most of y'all are going, (laughs) you're out of your mind, that's not happening. Not not trying to die. But imagine I sweetened the pot a little bit, and I said, well, what I haven't told you is that while I was over there last time, I met with Kim Jong-un, and uh, we hit it off. Uh, We both like Dennis Rodman and basketball, and, and so we've actually kind of become friends, and he told me that this is cool, that he... Uh, it's, he's okay with us passing out Bibles and preaching the gospel. And you're like, well, I'm, I'm still not really sure about that. But then I tell you, look, he even said he's going to come with us. The supreme leader of North Korea, who, who controls everything there, is going to come with us and, and let us do this. You look at the trip a little bit differently. Because his presence ensures the success of the mission. Friends, Jesus Christ is the real supreme leader of every country, of of every nation, of every people group. He has authority that Kim Jong-un isn't even capable of dreaming about. This is the one who has sent us on a mission and this is the one who goes with us. The creator and sustainer of the universe. The one who is risen from the dead and promised us a resurrection like his. The one who went into death and conquered it so that those who have faith in him can live. He has authority and he has sent us to make his victory over death, his lordship, his authority known. To make his name known by making disciples That's the only command in these verses, is to make disciples. There are three participles, go, baptizing, and teaching in your English translation. And really the sense is to go make disciples, be about the business of making disciples. And this is how you will do it, by baptizing and teaching. Baptizing here is a synecdoche or a catch-all term for the entire conversion experience. And so it's, it's like shorthand. Instead of saying um, in full, like teaching them, or go therefore, preaching to them the gospel, and as their hearts are regenerated and they repent from their sins and begin to follow Jesus and then go into the waters of baptism, which symbolize their union with Jesus and his death and their union with him and his resurrection and their uh, leaving of the world and entering into the family of God. Instead of putting all that there, he just says baptizing. Baptism is a symbol for the gospel in its entirety. It's a bright line of demarcation where people move from being in the world and being dead to being in Christ. It symbolizes what has happened in their heart by the work of the Holy Spirit already. It is interesting, though, that he does tell us to baptize. I think the tendency in our in christendom and in christianity today is to minimize baptism but but it's 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 clear to me here that god cares about baptism and he desires that we practice it i'm not free to edit god he has called those who would call themselves disciples to make disciples by baptizing disciples And so what we see here is that disciples are baptized. And they get baptized because we are about the business of conversion. We are about the business of witnessing to the reality of Jesus' resurrection. To the reality of his presence in our lives. To the reality of his worthiness of worship. Not just from Americans, notice but from all nations. Maybe a better translation here would be all clans, all tribes, all tongues, all language groups, all people groups. We make disciples everywhere of everyone. We're to proclaim this message so that the glory of God will cover the earth as the water covers the seas. We are to make Jesus' name known. When he becomes known, people become disciples. And step one of discipleship is saying, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I love the triunity of God being brought out in this verse. One name, three persons, beautiful. And the second part uh, of this making of disciples is teaching, teaching them to observe some of the things I have commanded you. That's not what he says. Teaching them to observe or obey everything I have commanded you. And that would include this very commission. Teaching is more broad than what I'm doing here. Teaching, I, I think, in a, a Christian sense, is simply learning about Jesus and then sharing that with others. It's, it's helping other people to follow Jesus. I mean, really, if I, if I were to, to summarize our whole church experience just really crudely, I would just say, a church is a place where a group of disciples follows Jesus together. And this is what we're doing. We're following Jesus together. We're learning about Jesus, and we're teaching each other about Jesus. There is a I think a special application here for parents. Uh, We're to make disciples of all nations. The Great Commission goes geographically to all peoples. But it's interesting, I think it also spans across time. And what I mean by that is it goes on down through generation after generation after generation. And that means that parents have a special role to play in the lives of their children. Parents, you are to be making disciples of your children in your home. You are the primary teachers of your children. Yes, yes, the the church is here to help. We want to help you in that process. But God has given you children. They're your responsibility to make disciples of them. Teach them about Jesus. Teach them about the glory of God, about what it looks like to live the Christian life. Some of you, many of you, are like, my kids get done left a long time ago, Pastor. You're not off the hook here. If you you have children in your life, I, I want you to help parents. When you have children, teach them the gospel. Talk of Jesus. Help and encourage the parents that are here. And consider adoption and foster care. I know many of you are like, we got past that point in our lives. We're done with kids. They ruin everything. Like we couldn't, didn't have a social life for 25 years because you know one of our boys lived in the basement. Listen, we're, we're retired from that. Friend, if you have a home that has space in it, there are people in our community that have a need. There are people who are made in the image of God, whom he loves deeply, that need a safe place to stay. But I'm retired. Friend, if, if you are here and you, you think that you can retire from ministry, you are in the wrong place. If you think that you get to retire from making disciples, you are in the wrong church you want to go somewhere where you can just attend service on Sunday morning and hear uh, about all that Jesus has done for you and not be challenged to do anything for him, well then go somewhere else. Because here, I want to do what Jesus has said. I want to make disciples. And disciples do everything that God has commanded. And one of the things he's commanded us to do is to care for the poor and the marginalized. One of the ways you can make disciples is inviting children into your life through adoption or foster care. I had somebody say to me the other day on foster care, why doesn't the church meet this need? They have all the reason in the world to meet this need, to care for children. Why don't why don't the church, why doesn't the church just do it? And I said, Because it sucks. It's beautiful and wonderful and awesome, but there are times where it's so hard. I mean, if you've had kids, you know know how hard kids can be. And then you bring other kids into that, and it's hard. But you know what? It's also glorious. It's also how we make disciples. And those children that need adopted or need fostered, they need love. They need to hear about the God who loved them so much he was willing to die for them. All of us are to be about making disciples. None of us is exempt from it. This is a command for all of us. I am uh, I'm reading through The Hobbit which doesn't surprise any of you, I don't think, that know me. I'm kind of a nerd. And Hulk, Tolkien opens his book, and the first few pages kind of describes the main character to us. His name is Bilbo Baggins, and he's given us a quick kind of snapshot of the family's history. And let me just read a couple lines of it to you. He says, This hobbit was a very well-to-do hobbit, and his name was Baggins. Baggins. The Bagginses had lived in the neighborhood of the hill for a time out of mind, and people considered them very respectable, not only because most of them were rich, but also because they never had any adventures or did anything unexpected. You could tell what a Baggins would say on any question without the bother of asking him. This is a story of how a Baggins had an adventure and found himself doing and saying things altogether unexpected. He may have lost his neighbor's respect, but he gained, well, you will see what he gained in the end. Friends, this story, if you're familiar with it, Bilbo is resistant. He doesn't want to go on this adventure that he's kind of being called to. And yet over and over again, the wizard Gandalf tells him, I know you're a tiny hobbit, but you have a big role to play in this adventure. And you go through the story and you find out that Bilbo does all these incredible things that he never thought himself capable of. And the the same is true for you, Christian. God has called you out of a life of just kind of comfortable, happy living into a life of adventure and risk. A life that leverages everything for the sake of the gospel. And I'm worried, that, I'm worried that many of us were missing out on what God has for us. We're missing out on this opportunity. Too many of us risk nothing, give nothing for the gospel, have nothing to do with the making of disciples. And we're missing out on this wonderful adventure that God has called us to. That's what the mission of God is. It's an adventure that he's called us to. We get to participate in the making of disciples. God has allowed us to participate in seeing dead people come to life. I Wonder what? What will you risk for the Great Commission? What will you give up to make disciples? all of us are called to it there are three ways three ways every christian must be involved with the great commission praying giving and witnessing praying giving and witnessing prayer in that we want to ask for god's power to bring life to all peoples everywhere we want to pray for the flourishing of our church for the flourishing of other churches We want to see anywhere that is preaching Christ crucified for our sins and risen for our justification by faith in Him, we want to see that message flourish. And so we pray for revival in our county, for revival overseas. We pray for the gospel to get to places it's not been yet. There's still people in the world that haven't heard the name of Jesus and they die and go to a Christless eternity. And that's on us. We need to be willing to pray for God to make the message flourish. A good way to do that, I, I've suggested it to you before, is a book, Operation World. You can download the app, Operation World. It gives you a country to pray for each day and it tells you specific needs the country has. Like, hey, they need to raise up leaders, or this country has a lot of false teaching in it, and it tells you how to pray. So pray for other countries. Pray for our country. Pray for our county. Pray for other churches. Pray for our church, that disciples would be made, that Christ would be honored. Pray, give, give your money to the mission of the gospel. We want to leverage our resources our material resources to the end of making christ known and you and i are only able to live at one place at a time but what we can do is we can put our influence in multiple places all the time by giving money to support people that live in other areas right this is why we give to other church plants to, to the well and to uh, Uptown Church in Martinsville because we want to see the gospel flourish in those places that we can't go. It's why we give to Lottie Moon, the International Mission Board through the Southern Baptist Convention because they send missionaries to countries that you and I might not ever go to. There are people we can know in China and in Slovakia and in Africa and in England and in Russia and all over the world because we are giving financially to Lottie Moon Missions Offering. we want to support this work. I think it's a great challenge for you and for me to think, how can we give more of our money to the mission of God globally? I've heard of one church who gave, they had a 51-49 rule. 49% of their budget went to missions. 51 of it, they ran their church. Now we're probably too small for all that, but I think it's a great, goal we want to be great givers because we don't want to be about the brand of rockfish valley baptist church we want to be about jesus we want to be about jesus kingdom growing and so we pray and we give and we witness wherever you live is where you are called to be a witness now you might get called to another country you might get called somewhere else and once you get there that's where you witness but for those of you who have your lives planted here, you are to be witnessing about Jesus right now. You're to be making disciples in your community. And that you might say, how? How do we go about that? And I think the easiest, no, it's not easy. I think the most effective way has been and, and always will be hospitality. And I don't mean like Martha Stewart where you make a centerpiece out of a pine cone and and you have your house perfectly staged out. Not hospitality. She screwed us up on that. Hospitality means loving the stranger. It means opening up your lives to other people. I mean, Jesus was all about it. I love in Luke's gospel, he is always, everywhere you follow Jesus in Luke's gospel, he is at a meal, he's heading to a meal, or he's leaving a meal. And food... And eating and drinking together, I mean, that, that, that goes hand in glove with hospitality. But listen to how important it is. The Bible says that the Son of Man came to do, came three ways, right? Let me, I'm going to read the first two to you. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's one. Two. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Then here's the third one. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. The first two tell us why Jesus came, to give his life that he might seek and save the lost. And the third tells us how he came, eating and drinking, inviting others into his life. I mean, Jesus, if you look at him in the Gospels, he's got 12 Just a motley crew with him almost all the time. He has almost no time to himself. And living a life that is hospitable means you will have less free time. It costs. But it's worth it. Eating together is important. Meals are social occasions that God has built into life. you got to eat. And so you might as well do it with somebody else as often as possible. I mean, if you, if you will just take two or three meals a week and resolve to eat them with other people, you will build the church and be participating in the mission of God. I mean, if, if you really want to see the world change, have people over for dinner. Put a spread out in front of them the best you can. Treat them like kings and queens. And enjoy that evening to the max. Watch the barriers break down. Watch friends be made. Friendship comes before discipleship. Almost always. The old cliche people don't care what you know until they know how much you care. Did I say that right? I think. They want to know that you love them. Show people the love of God and then share Christ with them. Hospitality, it's important. I mean, you know this, just the way you live your life. How do you build relationship with your family? Well, on Thanksgiving, we eat together. Christmas, oh, we, we eat together. Easter, we, we eat together. Relationship is forged around the table. Eat with people. Invite people to your home accept invitations to eat. Sadly, hospitality has become such a lost art. It's crucial to disciple-making. Some of you are going, I'm just too busy for that. Too busy. If you are too busy for the Great Commission, then you need to change something. If it's your job, you need to change your job. If your job impedes you from obeying God and attending worship and in fulfilling the Great Commission, change your job. If you need to change your calendar, change your calendar. Whatever it is that is keeping you from following Jesus, it has to go. Maybe maybe it means saying no to things. Let me, let me free you to say no, not just to drugs, but to Bible studies. I would A thousand times over, have you have someone over to your house for a meal each week? Then you attend four or five Bible studies that week. Like, it's great to get to know God. It's great to study the Bible. And I I want you to walk with God. But God doesn't just want us to study the playbook. He wants us to get in the game. And too many of us have been standing on the sidelines doing nothing and expecting the church to grow and to flourish. God has called us to make disciples. He's called you to make disciples. He's called you to pray. He's called you to give. He's called you to witness. And hey, you want a tip on how to do that right away, real easy? Have people to your house. Is there somebody in, just in our church that you can build a relationship this week by having over to your home? Is there a non-Christian in your cell phone that you could call up after church and ask to get coffee with? That's how it starts. We want to be about making disciples. What what does the next step for you look like? What does the next step in your discipleship, your following of Jesus, look like? What does the next step for you look like to make disciples? As a disciple maker, what do you need to do? Jesus has empowered us to do this. Because he is risen, he is worthy of our obedience. He's risen from the dead. We have good news that we get to herald. And he goes with us to do it. That's why we want to make disciples, because we want to make Jesus known and we want to make people happy. you, You can't be eternally happy apart from Christ. You really want to love people? Well, yeah, you can make disciples of them. Tell them about Jesus. There's nothing to be intimidated about here. Jesus goes with us when we take the gospel. And Jesus has told us, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is on offense, not on defense. Gates are a defensive structure. The gospel will prevail. Jesus wins. There's coming a day when He returns from heaven to make earth into heaven, to make all things new, to resurrect the dead into eternal delight with Him or into eternal punishment. There's a time coming where He's going to make everything sad untrue and wipe every tear from the eye. Hell will not prevail. The church does. It's time that we got in the game. Time that we participated in God's great adventure so that we might share in His victory and be faithful disciples. Jesus is risen. What are you going to do about it? He's told us go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Praise God, he is with us always to the very end of the age. Let's pray. God, this is a essential part of Christianity This text is a pillar in the Bible. All of us believe or know Jesus because this text is in Scripture. Because someone obeyed it and brought the gospel to us so that we could hear and believe. Someone put a Bible in our hands so that we could read and come to faith. God, we thank you for your graciousness in making yourself known to us. We ask that you would make us just as gracious, just as obedient in taking your word to others. Help us to love people that are made in your image, that are separated from you because of their sin. Help us to resolve to win the lost to Christ. To be faithful to get others into the presence of God's Word. To be faithful to show others your love by inviting them into our lives. And give us the confidence and the courage to do this by remembering your promises that you are with us and that indeed you are alive. God, you are so good. And we want all the nations to be glad. We want all people to be glad. We want all people to know the true and deep joy, the joy that doesn't ever go out, the joy that's beyond the walls of this world, the joy that can only be known when Jesus is. Make Jesus known in us and help us to know him more deeply. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.